shine bright like a diamond Shine bright like a diamond And welcome to Directors Club, the monthly podcast where we examine the work of one director, mainly focusing on two films and uh, hopefully uncovering some deeper meanings and hidden truths. Uh, today's subject is one I've been looking forward to ever since getting a screener last year for a film called Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, but f- first things first, I am happy to say that we have a new president elect, and yesterday was one of the happiest days of the year as a result. So uh, in a chipper mood for once, which is rare. Um, but I'm I'm hoping you know everyone out there listening is pleased with the news because uh, well, we needed some good news. Anyway, uh, joining me to discuss the work of one Celine Skiama are two returning guests. One who uh, has appeared in a few episodes in the past, and the other a long overdue return, going all the way back to his appearance on the Michelle Gondry episode. First, let's say hello to the host. Of the matinee cast, Mr. Ryan McNeil, so glad you're back. Greetings and salutations, sir. Congratulations on your new uh, your new leadership. The world is quite pleased with uh, how you all have managed to take care of uh, your own house. Yes, I'm feeling hopeful for once. And of course, uh, a friend and film writer who first appeared to talk about uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, welcome back, Kate Blair. Hey, Woo-hoo. good to be here. Yeah, it's been a while. I, I, well, it's been a rough year, and we haven't been able to, you know, uh, meet up at like the music box or talk movies in person. But uh, yeah. I, I, I know that uh, you're, you're definitely missed <laughs> talking <laughs> about films. Uh, you're one of my favorite people to do that with. So I'm, I'm excited that we're going to have a great conversation here. So totally, Skiamo, I, I think she. One of the last times I saw her was an event. I think at the music box. Oh, um, she was there in person. That's right. In person. I mean, one of the last Chicago movie things I did was see that, which is a pretty good memory to have. Was that earlier this year? I think it was in February. Wow. Happy Valentine's Day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's lovely. Um, yeah. So as I've been doing at the top of the show, geez, since March now, because uh, not only do I care about film, I care about my friends and guests who are kind enough to come on. I have to ask how things are in life since 2020 has been quite the roller coaster to say the least. Uh, Kate, how, how have you been dealing with the pandemic and adjusting to all the weird, wild changes going on? Yeah. I mean, it's been hard. Um, and it's, it's actually been hard for me to watch movies in the same way that I used to. I don't know if anybody else has experienced that. <laughs> um, it took me like months into this pandemic to even finish a book. It's just sure. been hard to concentrate and engage with art in the way that I want to. Um, but it's actually been really refreshing to dive into schema to prepare for this. Um, it just forcing me to watch in a more engaged way than I have been recently. And that's good. And we've had some good news in the past few days. I know um, it's a very complicated situation 
I think we're celebrating right now. Um, I don't know how long that'll last before the next thing, um, whether Trump refuses to concede or what um, what this new administration does or does not do. So happy, but uh, reflecting is how I am currently. Yeah, I've been cautiously optimistic. And I would say that it's it has been very difficult even to do the show at times because uh, when you're preparing for a filmmaker and yet at the same time, your your phone is lighting up with the latest news on what's going on in the world. It's hard not to look. And I know that, yeah, it's as simple as turning it off and, you know, totally engaging in art. But I, I, I felt like my attention span just got way worse throughout everything that's been going on because I'm also focused on what's going on <laughs> in the world and yeah, how absolutely. people are reacting to it. And it's it's been challenging. It's, it's like... Yeah, I, I, I really commend a lot of uh, songwriters out there, certainly someone like uh, Jeff Tweedy, who just released an album that he recorded during quarantine, because I, I figured like when we had like a little stay at home order here in, in Chicago for like six weeks, I thought, oh, yeah, I'm just going to be churning out songs and, you know, writing things. And <laughs> right. I, I couldn't do it. I just couldn't. I couldn't focus. I couldn't sit down and actually and actually do it. I I I tried, but it just never really uh, really came together. Um, Ryan, I know you're up there in, in friendly Canada, <laughs> where I think, uh, things are relatively open and kind of back to normal. But how are things been for you? Um, back to normal is a, a a drastic stretch. Like things are slightly open and I mean, our cases are rising. So this could change by the time this episode goes online, things could change um, from how they are as we're sitting here on Sunday afternoon. Um, I've, I've been, I've, I've actually been out of work since March, but uh, I've been making the best of it. I've managed to, you know, money is okay, but uh, I've managed to focus on mental health and physical health. I've been walking, a whole lot. The weirdest thing for me to kind of really adjust to is, and this is going to sound strange to say when a person has like nothing really to do with their time is that my reading is way, way down. And I know that that sounds bonkers considering that I still read far more than the average bear. Oh yeah. But what I just, what I realized um, maybe a month or two ago is that I was missing little parses of time that I would read. Like I would, I would always have a book on me and read like on the subway going to and fro. Or if you and I were meeting for coffee, I'd inevitably show up early and I'd read for 10 minutes before you showed up. Those little parses of time I'm missing those. And it's got me down. Like I'd say probably five or 10 books off my normal pace. So it's a, it's a weird little place to be in terms of things like that. Yeah, I feel that too. My yeah. my reading pattern has also changed. Yeah. I used to, you know, I used to read some pages on the way into work, some pages on my lunch hour and some pages on the way home. I didn't read at home at all. And actually like finding a rhythm in a place in my apartment to read has been a really weird um, struggle. Like I still like, you know, I don't have a spot. I don't really have a time. I'm just kind of like, okay, I'll grab an hour here or, you know, okay, today it works well here. Generally speaking though, um, things aren't bad. Um, you know, I'm still, still watching movies. Not quite as, again, not quite as much as I used to, but, um, making the best of it. Toronto is, has been doing 
reasonably well with this whole thing although there we could like most things be doing better um and of course i do i do really miss going to the movies tiff was all virtual this year um our theaters are all still closed um i realized this past week that it is going to be the first time in my life like i went to my very first concert in 1991 it's going to be the first year since 1991 that i will not have seen live music for 365 days so that was a weird experience but i mean i've got my health i i'm I'm paying my bills it could be way worse yeah and the the concert thing for me is really hard uh i i I try to go to see at least three or four shows minimum yeah here and I've even tried to venture out to something like Pitchfork Fest, even though I'm not a big like outdoorsy, you know, giant festival kind of a person where there's tons of people and they're getting drunk and it's crazy and like the crowds are insane. But uh, yeah, I I was missing it this year and it got to the point where I'm like, I need I need to do something for the music venues. And that's kind of when I uh, just out of the blue joined a Facebook fan group for Wilco uh, and I, I sent out this, this just, this just like random idea I had where I was like, what if we did like a tribute album to Wilco and then all the proceeds could help out all the music venues. And then it became, <laughs> it became this like thing where I thought, Oh, you know, much like when I did a magnetic fields tribute, I'll get like, you know, 30 songs or something. And this time it turned out to be 70 songs. <laughs> um, lots of people participated and it, it became way bigger than I expected to the point where even Jeff Tweedy himself got word about it and has listened to it and gave his support. And it's, and we've raised right now close to a thousand dollars for the music venues in and around Chicago. Wow. So good work. Super cool. It's crazy. <laughs> Cause it's like, I, I just, just a small idea I had one day and then it turns into something kind of, kind of huge and unexpected, but um if people want to check this out, go to justafan.bandcamp.com. That's pretty much where you can find the tribute and certainly the links to the uh, charity it's going to, which is called Civil, which stands for Chicago Independent Venue League. It helps out a lot of great venues here in and around the city. Um, certainly places like the Hideout and the Metro uh, have gotten back to me about it, and it's kind of kind of overwhelming in the best way possible. So, so I'm, I'm glad that at least in the midst of all this uh, craziness, it did something positive to help. Um, and, you know, certainly putting together this podcast has been great too. Um, so before we launch into the director discussion proper, another thing I like to know from my guests is what films have they seen lately? Uh, besides the work of the director we're talking about just to give our listeners sort of an, a possible alternative viewing if they choose. Uh, so here, here comes the wonderful <laughs> What We Watch segment. I am a man who will watch all dumb movies. They could be gross, really sad, or dense King Arthur's court Images undertow Rocky for my blue heaven 
thief, I heart Huckabees and blow. Uh, Ryan, we'll start with you this time. Has there been anything that uh, you've caught up with that uh, you want to share with us, whether recently or? Well, yeah. Um, what I've been doing, actually, the probably the highlight of the the autumn for me, because um, you know, I mean, there, there's we're still kind of new films are kind of trickling down. You get like maybe one a week that shows up on demand or on streaming or whatever, but it's not nearly the same as it would be in theaters where you get something like, you know, 10 or 12 over the course of a weekend. Um, But, and, and of course also like new television shows are kind of spotty in terms of how they're being produced and, and cranked out. The highlight of my fall, as far as content is concerned is I've been keeping up on Turner classic movies with the women make film series. Um, Yeah, this was a documentary series created by, and it's apropos for the conversation we're going to be having today about Celine Sciamma. Um, Mark cousins, documentarian out of Scotland created this. I believe it's a 15 hour documentary series about the, the women who have made film over the course of cinema's history. And Mm. right from the start, he has said, this is not, meant to be any kind of a canon or any kind of an omnibus of these are the essential films made by women. And I hope that you can hear the capital letters in my voice. Instead, what he has done is created his, in his words, created a road movie through the, through the, the, the oeuvre of female directors and looked at how women have captured everything from politics to the body to um composition and on and on and on and on like there's 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 something silly like 20 chapters or 40 chapters actually dedicated to all sorts of creative um elements and themes and storytelling techniques so along with the actual chapters that that kind of highlight all of these movies turner then overnight runs i think like it's it's usually about like eight or nine films that relate back to the chapter that was shown so my uh, my my dvr is just getting a workout and every wednesday morning i wake up and there's like seven different films waiting for me to watch um so that that's been a lot of what i've been watching over the last like it kicked off right before TIFF actually kicked off at the beginning of September and it's going to go to the first week in December. So we're in the home stretch now, but like just this week, for instance, I watched, um, I watched outrage by Ida Lupino, which was just goddamn glorious. I watched the, um, I watched this movie that was kind of a faux documentary, um, about a den of heroin junkies called the connection from 1961 by Shirley Clark which was just an absolute, just beautiful, raw, stunning movie to watch. And I mean, the thing I like about this series as well is that he's not just focusing on the artsy and the high fo- and the high brow, you know, like, I mean, he's had, you know, little glimmers dedicated to everything from Wayne's world to clueless to wonder woman. And I mean, into that end, another movie that I watched this week was from 1978 by Claudia wheel called girlfriends. Oh, that's one of my favorite discoveries of the year. And it's coming out in criterion this Tuesday. That's right. Good one. Yeah. So, so like that, that's the thing. So like my, my, um, 
my Monday and Tuesday this week was dedicated to girlfriends outrage and the and the connection. Or sorry, my Tuesday and Wednesday was dedicated to girlfriends the outrage and connection. And it was just a great way to spend the week while trying not to watch the news and and focus on vote counting. Yeah, tell me a little bit about the connection. I'm not as familiar with that one. I'm obviously uh, Idol Opino is definitely on the list of directors I really want to cover. Uh, in the near future, because the, the ones I've seen, I, I think the Hitchhiker and there's gosh, there's another one. It might be, might be the Bigamist. I think she did that too. Yeah, the Bigamist. Yeah, I've seen those two, but I, I I've yet to see an outrage. But uh, I don't know much about the connection. So the connection is from 1961. It was directed by Shirley Clark, and it's sort of a film within a film. It it it's the hmm. story of these two filmmakers who go into this really seedy it's in black and white really seedy new york drug den and there's like two guys in the corner just playing their music there's a woman who kind of comes in and out who you know is is kind of worried about these guys and they're just you're just basically spending it's not even all that long it's i think it's like 80 minutes or something like that it's on the criterion channel if anybody wants to watch it and it's it's a lot of these guys just talking to each other, talking to the camera, um, just about you know like what they go through. Um, once I mean it's it's not so realistic as that you would think that it's an actual document documentary. Like there's a lot of moments that seem very very composed and very staged in a really lovely way, you know. But but it's not the kind of film within a film where you would really kind of question what you're seeing. And in some, I mean, in some moments it kind of gets a little much, like there's a lot of times where they're speaking very, very 1960s New York and like, come on, man, you don't know, man. And that gets a little (laughs) much after a while, but it's just, it was just so sharp and so um, just wonderful to spend time with. Um, And and I, I, you know, at, at the, I'm ashamed to say, I'd actually never heard of Shirley Clark before, um, coming into this, but of course she directed Portrait of Jason, um, which which uh, is another big kind of totem in the in the canon of female filmmakers. And I, you know, it's 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 what I love about movies is you discover just one piece of the puzzle, and all of a sudden you want to put together the whole puzzle. Yeah, it's described as a it, it was a play within a play within a jazz concert, basically. That's kind of wild. Yeah. Wow. No, it sounds kind of real. It sounds interesting. I'm going to have to seek this one out. You said it's on the Criterion channel right now? It is indeed. Cool. cool. Yeah. So, Kate, how about you? What have you seen recently? Oh, wow. I mean, like like I said, I've been having trouble watching anything <laughs> except <laughs> TV. Um, so I could. Yeah, no, I, I've, I've been able to like binge on like I, I've, I've watched some you know, short films. And then I got kind of back in the twilight zone, which just then got me back into X files. Like yes. I can <laughs> an hour long story as long as it's compelling. So I understand that. I guess I have been watching. Um, I mean, as I always do in October, I watch a lot of horror movies. Um, so I could, I could maybe talk about a few of those. I think the best new to me one that I watched was basket case. Um <laughs> And yeah, (laughs) and I actually, um, I managed to get my wife to watch it with me, which um, I wasn't expecting, because this is not normally her thing. Um, But (laughs) she actually liked it, I think. I definitely did. Um, I know I liked um, Frank Kennenlotter's other movie, Brain Damage, which I had seen. 
Oh yeah, that one's really good. Yeah, really I, good, like, I loved that movie. Kind of a parable. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to check out Basket Case, and um, it yeah, it delivers. <laughs> um, yeah, it's weird, but I mean, again, like that—that that was at the time of like practical effects, kind of in 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 the, in the vein of Reanimator a little bit. Yeah, the practical effects are pretty great. They're very very lo-fi. <laughs> Um, I think there's some stop motion animation in there. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's good. Um, definitely <laughs> not up to like our current standard of special effects, but I feel like this is like a really scrappy movie and I liked it a lot for that. Um, and sibling relationships, however strange are always a fun thing to explore <laughs> in film. <laughs> Yeah, and if you're a fan of like the you know the early work of Peter Jackson or something like that, there's there's just that really strong mix of humor and horror with with the majority of Hen and Lauder's work, I would say, especially when you get to something like Frankenhooker. I haven't <laughs> which, seen that one. Which is just very memorable for the uh, VHS cover box when I was a teenager, and you could press it, and it would just speak to you. It would go, "You want a date." That is cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's probably the weakest of his films. I mean, it's it's way more silly than scary, but it's worth seeing if you're on his wavelength and you liked his other work. I probably should watch it then. Yeah, um, I I do think I liked Brain Damage more than Basket Case. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I would. That agree. little monster design is just incredible. <laughs> Um, and there's sequels you have to dive into now. Yeah, I know. I, I started on a journey. There's yeah, there's three sequels or two sequels. Yeah, three there's, movies a, whole, in there's a whole basket case trilogy. There is. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. sweet lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. What else have I been watching? I, um, in terms of TV, I've started watching Game of Thrones, which I know I'm like really late, um, beginning, and I. I never thought that I would watch it actually, but then quarantine happened. Um, and I was like, well, there's eight seasons of this show that everybody really seems to like. <laughs> so I started watching it. Um, and I'm pretty hooked actually. That's good to hear. It's one of those shows. I don't know if I'm, I'm ever going to watch just because I, I don't have a lot of passion for that, for that genre the way a lot of people do. I mean, I, the sword and sandal or the dragons and all that stuff. I just, fantasy has been kind of just one of those genres that where I, I just, I, I have a really hard time connecting with it. Yeah, uh, I can see that. Um, and especially like medieval uh, yeah. fantasy, it just seems like really overplayed. And I, I think it is um, definitely, but I still am enjoying this like a way more than I thought I would. It's Although a surprisingly, I... sorry to cut you off, Kate. Oh, it's a surprisingly no political show. I think that it was is. what that's that was what drew me through it the most. Is that like I'm not really big on fantasy and dragons and swords and magic and that kind of thing. Um, but watching the the machinations of this nation and how they're basically fighting for power, um, it, that was what really got me. What carried me through that show. So I'll be interested, and I will definitely be interested in checking back with you if and when you finish it because you're in for some you're in for some stuff oh, um, no. I, i'll be really really interested to hear what your takes are yeah i like 
Um, I definitely, one of the reasons that kept me back from it was just that the treatment of rape and race and a lot of things are kind of, they're just not dealt with very well. And I agree with a lot of that. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. But in terms of, yeah, power machinations, especially, um, it's this really violent world uh, that actually like with the political climate right now, it's it, it's sort of a mirror in a way that you wouldn't expect, even though it's very totally yeah very violent. Um, so yeah, it's a it's an interesting way to escape reality by diving into a very thoroughly thought out alternate reality that <laughs> addresses most of the same issues we're dealing with. Um, How far in are you? I think I just started season five. Oh, you're really deep in. Wow, I'm pretty deep. I okay. got deep fast. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll get to it eventually. It's one, <laughs> it's one of those shows where I'm like I'll, I'll I'll probably watch it at some point, and I but I don't know my passion for it isn't quite up there. And at the same time, like I I thought I was really really done with the whole um, serial killer cop procedural show, <laughs> and I watched um I watched the killing, and I got into season three when I finally realized like how many people uh, I respect and admire are associated with that show, especially um, acting wise. Um, Amy Simon shows up. Um, uh, Keith Gordon directed a couple of episodes. Uh, And it's just, it's incredibly dark and twisted and in ways that feel like a horror movie or feel like something like seven. so it just it really envelops you and of course there are twists along the way so i i but i get mad at these shows because i'm like you are so designed to manipulate me to hook me to to basically say you are you are going to be staying up and binging on this because of the way it ends Mm -hmm. and i know that at this point i think that's, that's kind of probably part of the writing process i would think for for tv writers is like you got to get you got to get them hooked and you got to give them reasons to keep watching. Uh, and I'm you know, I'm sure that Game of Thrones has that element to it as well. Like any show that everybody I think is obsessed with or to some degree. But when you have a good mystery and you actually care about the characters and even if it is dark and really upsetting at times, it still works. So I uh, I started watching The Killing and I'm very impressed with it. Um, but I. You know, I was I was debating about what to talk about because I've certainly seen some good horror films for the Halloween season. But, um, you know, when when I first came back to Directors Club for the Anthony Mann episode, we had just lost Kirk Douglas. So we naturally discussed uh, some of his work. And this time, fairly recently, we lost Sean Connery. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm sad to say that I've never been a James Bond enthusiast. Me neither, really. Yeah, I, and I've tried. I've I've certainly watched a few here and there, um, but I just I have never really connected with the Bond franchise. Uh, so my first exposure to him really was his you know incredibly joyful performance as Indiana Jones's dad, <laughs> and uh, you know his Oscar winning turn in The Untouchables, but. Uh, I was interested in checking out a couple of obscure titles that he's been in. And there's one in particular that I wanted to bring up because I don't know if anybody ever really talks about it. And when I saw that he was a lead in a Sidney Lumet film, I had to catch up with this film called The Offense 
from 1973. And, you know, most folks know that Sidney Lumet is kind of the master of the police procedural again. Um, and it usually involves, you know, corrupt cops or just really complex characters losing their sense of control. Uh, and, and this one is just no exception. I was not prepared to see Sean Connery go as dark as he gets with this. Um, he's basically playing a detective who, you know, for 20 years has done his job very well, but the work is really getting to him um, and causing a lot of psychological damage. It's like for, for years he's held back, you know, all, all of his emotions and, 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 it's just about to explode now for, for, for one reason or another involving this latest case that um, there's this child molester out there and he may or may not have just been caught and he's interrogating this child molester. And basically the offense is that he beats him to a bloody pulp and we sort of want to know why this happened or what happened in the interrogation room. And so it, it jumps around a little bit in time, but um, it reminded me of something like true detective. Really? It's, it's, it's really dark, but it's also based on a 1968 stage play called This Story of Yours by John Hopkins. So it's it's very, very talky, and it only takes place in a few rooms involving two characters often confronting one another. But it, again, it's like it's, 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 it's a crime drama that's about obsession and denial and the psychological toll that this kind of work does on somebody when you're exposed to so many horrific crimes, there are like these montages of what um, Connery has seen over his 20 years. And those are creepy to witness because you, you see um, certain crime scenes for like split seconds and you, you don't even have time to process what you've just seen. Uh, and, and, and so it all sort of culminates in the interrogation, which is, you know, the reason why we're so invested, like what happened in that room and, it basically becomes this, you know, verbal dispute, this this incredible confrontation in which they sort of discuss the philosophy and nature of crime and, you know, things do get very physical. But as someone who really loves to hear people talk uh, about psychology or philosophy, even if it's like didactic or preachy, I, I just never get, get bored with with hearing you know, these kind of conversations about why are we doing this? Why do we kill? Why, <clears throat> why, you know, are there quote unquote good guys and versus bad guys and the gray area in between and all that kind of stuff. But really, you know, there's just this insane moment kind of halfway through where Connery actually talks to his wife about what he's thinking and what he's experiencing. I don't know if I've ever seen him be, as cruel or unlikable <laughs> as he is in that moment. It's, I mean, we're used to seeing him being so cool and kind and charming and in control, unless you think of maybe uh, Hitchcock's Marnie, you know, that's like the only kind of other example I can think of. I'm sure there's more where he plays. these really, Oh man. Uh, I, had, man I hadn't forgotten about that, that he was yeah. in that, that he was in that. Yeah. He's, you know, kind of creepy and controlling <laughs> in that film. Uh, and, you know, again, they're, they actually have interesting conversations throughout that, that film, too, about what it means to be who you are and why you are the way you are and what does it mean when you want to control somebody. Um, but it's – okay, so the offense is just – it's not pleasant, 
So it's like one of those films that I sort of say, and I recommend with caution because you kind of have to be prepared for it. Cause I certainly wasn't, it was like, you know, I watched right after Halloween, but it's it, with how dark it is and the way the opening shot is filmed in slow motion and the score and the sound design, it's all very creepy, but um, the editing is kind of Nicholas rogue like in spots with those montages and what it becomes is really going to probably, it's probably going to haunt you <laughs> in, in a lot of ways. Cause uh, yeah, it just, it just shows the, the dark side of what it means to confront the nature of evil and how that affects you, especially when you're a detective. Um, and, you know, to see like, Lumet's ability to turn a play into something cinematic is kind of what he's known for. Obviously, you know, with something like 12 angry men, Mm -hmm. he certainly did that beautifully. Um, And just to watch Sean Connery play a character this disturbed and vulnerable is uh, that's the main reason why I think people should seek this out because, you know, we we have a certain perception of, of Connery and he's sort of, I don't know if it was a, an intentional choice to be like, I'm going to subvert every expectation people have of me and play this kind of role. And it's very possible that it was, you know, something he chose to do just to get out of his comfort zone. But um, I hope everyone will check out this film since it's something I'll definitely revisit just for the performance of Sean Connery. And because I'm kind of a huge Sidney Lumet fan. Yeah. I would definitely check it out based on your description. Just prepare yourself. It's dark. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, the way you're describing it reminds me of his film, The Pawnbroker. Um, mm. Cindy Lumet. Yeah, that's a great film. Good call. Yeah. Um, so, and I remember the same thing about that, that it's very much about trauma and it can be, it was very difficult to watch, but I haven't forgotten it. Yeah. I need to revisit that one. And he's certainly a director that I could do a, a sequel episode on. I think that was one of our, shorter episodes because I only had limited time with the guests and there was just like so much ground to cover with his filmography. Cause it goes back to the sixties and you know, he, he was doing stellar work all the way up until, you know, he passed away with right after, uh, before the devil knows you're dead. Yeah. So he's, he's a remar- remarkable director. Um, and you know, obviously, yeah, what what are, what are you guys' experience with Connery? I mean, just in general, like I'm just curious, just because we just lost him, and he's not someone again who I I explored his uh, work outside of you know what he's known for the most. Yeah, same here. Um, I'd actually I'd forgotten that he was in Marnie, but now that I'm looking back on it, I remember um, being really intrigued with him in that role, just because. I wasn't interested in Bond, really. Um, but he is a good actor. And I, he works interestingly with um, Hitchcock's sensibility there, too. And it really brings yeah. out something controlling and nasty in him that was pretty fascinating. My only other like touch point for Sean Connery, which is weird, is Zardos. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, yeah. So I'm like... My um, experience is probably not like most people's with Sean Connery either, where it's probably his outlier films are the ones that I know him by. I think, yeah, there's definitely a few I want to check out. I think the weird thing for me is 
you know, coming to a, an actor like uh, Connery, who's like, he's really, he's really a rock star more than he is an actor, right? Like he's, he's, he's not exactly known for, you know, like acting the way that you would get out of somebody like, you know, currently Meryl Streep or, or Daniel Day Lewis or going back Marlon Brando without those kinds of actors. He, he really just, he shows up, he does his Sean Connery thing and off he goes. He doesn't exactly disappear into the role. He always just plays some version of Sean Connery. And the crazy thing is, you know, coming to him, um, you know, mostly in like the mid to late eighties, I got this later version of Connery that, that was like at least past the midway point of his career. And that's the version that's like most prevalent in my head is this actor who did stuff like first night where he played King Arthur and entrapment where he's playing with Catherine Zeta Jones. And of course, you know, like things like hunt for red October and the rock, which is so bloody weird because of course he's a man who made his name playing this suave debonair, you know, you know, international man of mystery. And that doesn't exactly jive with the character I watched in finding Forrester. It's, it's <laughs> a strange thing when it comes to iconic presence that, you know, if you weren't there for them at their height, it can be really, really jarring sometimes to see like what the fuss is about. Um, I, you know, I, I even compare it to musicians who are well past their point of creating timely music and and you know important pieces of work and i've kind of turned into a legacy act and you kind of wonder what's the fuss about and then you you know maybe you dig back into their original stuff and you understand their the, the context of what they were doing and why it was important and how good it sounded in its moment connery is that kind of guy you know if you watch the stuff he was doing around the time he quit bond like like mid 70s and before or even into the late 70s with marnie he's playing a very very different he's playing very different roles than he would go on to play by the time we got to the 80s the 90s and the new century so it's it's really when i'm looking like i'm scrolling through his letterboxed posters and it's just so very jarring to see the offense and just above it is his role as the villain in the Avengers with Ray Fiennes and Uma Thurman. You know, oh, you know, boy. That, that, that's what happens with actors. It's really trippy to watch this play out. Now, that's a good point. And I hadn't thought of just, yeah, how his career really went through these insane ups and downs. Uh, I know a lot of people do point to, you know, like the, his, uh, his role in, in Robin and Marion, I think is beloved and certainly that's one I've been meaning to check out ever since we did an episode, which I didn't uh, join for, but I wish I had uh, on Richard Lester. Mm. So that's, a, you know, that's certainly a film I'm, I'm planning to catch up with and, you know, just to get more of a sense of his range. And I'm certain, I'm certain though, that's kind of one of those charming, <laughs> if he's playing Robin hood, I would think he's going to be uh, less dark than he is in something like the offense. Uh, but yeah, you're, you know, you're right. Whenever he, popped up in things in the nineties. Uh, you you kind of knew what you were getting. Like even, you know, even in something like, you know, the rock, you, 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 you still have, you still had a perception of him being this, you know, action packed guy, but he's, you know, he's, he's playing an older character in that certainly, but uh, his presence, his, his charisma was always on display. And 
something that you always look forward to. Like you can expect Sean Connery to be Sean Connery. And that was never like eye rolling in any way. And that's kind of what he did with the untouchables. That's probably, I mean, people can make that argument. I'm sure that it was kind of like one of those legacy Oscars. Like he's been, he's been so consistent for so long and, you know, let's give him one finally for that role. But he's actually really good in that movie. And, you know, it's like, I've never been the hugest fan of that movie, but I, he's something about it that I, 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 it's very memorable mm-hmm. for sure. But yeah, now I mean, again, another legend gone similar to Kirk Douglas, just a, a, a lot of films that I would love to catch up with in, in the near future. And I'm glad that I, you know, ventured out and checked out something like the offense. Oh boy. Um, I think we're ready. All right. If you, I think, I think we are, cause I'm, <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> Let's do this. Um, we're going to talk about the director of the episode. Celine, you made amazing movies. The female gaze with a touch of gloomy. The great actors that you employ. Water lilies, girlhood, and tomboy. Paintings and dresses catching fire. You really know how to show desire. Gender roles, they should expire. Now let's talk about the great Skiyama. Ama, 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 ma, ma. I usually begin with a little introduction to the filmmaker that we're about to discuss, but I want to do something just a little different because, um, you know, obviously we're going to touch upon all of her work uh, because she does have a smaller filmography than usual. Um, but I want, oh, I hear a cat. Oh, yeah. oh, that's There's one, he, that, that's Lord Baelish. He's very vocal. Lord oh, Baelish. Good. I can't trust him. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I think this time I wanted to throw it to my guests and simply ask, why the enthusiasm to come on for this particular episode? What is it about this director that speaks to you and, and, and makes her work worth discussing? Because like I said, smaller filmography, but I, th- I think there are <laughs> definite themes running throughout that we'll touch upon that I think resonate for, for, for a good reason. Kate, I, I, I of course want to hear from you because it's, it is all too rare to, you know, discuss, uh, a, a very strong feminine filmmaker here on the show. And obviously I, you know, I want to have a woman's perspective from you. Uh, what excites you the most about her work in general? Um, well, I, I love Celine Sciamma. Um And like, yeah, I am, I am a woman. I'm a queer woman. Um, and she makes films um, about queer women um, and about female sexuality. Although I would argue like with Tomboy, not just, female um she Mm -hmm. has um this really amazing approach to her work i think um in delving through it well your question was about what made me your question is what uh draws me to it um so yeah i guess it's um sort of unapologetic queerness uh, and female gaze are the number one thing um, and interestingly, um, I was like attracted to her projects individually before I really knew she was the author behind all of them. Um, and I think starting with Tomboy, that was just something I sought out 
um, because I heard um, it was a really good queer film. Uh, and it is. It's really, it's amazing. So I'm looking forward to getting into all of these. Um, and then also Girlhood um, was just something I stumbled on um, and just adored. Um, and it turned out she was uh, the director behind that as well. And then after those two, she sort of became a name that I was looking for. Um, and she pops up in other places too. Um, she's done some screenwriting for um, for other people. So she was in, um, or she wrote or co-wrote Being 17 with um, Andre Teshine, I think. Yeah, I wish I'd caught up with that. That was one I, I wanted to see and I didn't. Yeah, it was at Chicago Film Fest um, and I volunteered that year. And it was mm. the one that I used my volunteer um, stipends to see. So that's that was an interesting experience too. And I actually didn't know, I don't think I knew going in that it was written by her. It was just kind of a surprise to see that up on the screen. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll definitely get into it, but I, I think she's great and really exciting. She's only 40. Um, and I think she's already produced what I think is a masterpiece portrait of lady on fire. Um, and I'm just like really excited to see where she goes. Yeah. Another film that she wrote, uh, bird people, I know a couple of critics really championed as well. That's another one that I've been hoping to catch up with very soon. Uh, she might have just co-wrote that one, but I, I know it got some acclaim. Uh, but yeah, the, like you said, there's a lot to discuss in terms of each film and certainly strengths throughout. Uh, but uh, I'm also curious to hear what, uh, what, what, you know, Ryan, I, I know I threw, you know, you threw out a couple directors at me to come back on the show for, and, and Celine was one of them. So tell me a little bit as to, uh, as to why. Well, my podcast for the crux of 2020 has actually been looking back at the decade that has just gone by. And what I did was I reached out to a dozen different guests and said, what were some of the, your favorite films or films that you thought best summed up the last decade? Um, Cause I want to go back over the course of 10 years and talk about some of the shows that I didn't get to talk about over the course of my main podcast. And I was so deeply disappointed that nobody chose Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, because first of all, I just wanted an excuse to talk about it. And second of all, this for me was one of the very best films of the last decade. And Katie is absolutely correct. It is an absolute masterpiece um, that I come back to again and again and again, because it's it's now it's like it's on demand now. So no matter what room I'm in, it's like three buttons away. It, uh-huh. It's a really great time that we live in, guys. I'm telling you. Um <laughs> Celine Schiama, for me, with the four films that she wrote and directed, what I'm so deeply drawn to is the way she is a master of show, don't tell. You could, I don't advise this, but you could potentially watch her movies on mute and still understand what is going on, the crux of what is going on in the way that her character's look and hold their body and move and that is not an accident because a lot of the time she is dealing with some very 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 young talent portrait of a lady on fire she's probably dealing with her oldest cast and they're still mid to late 20s you know most of the time she's dealing with 20 or younger or in the second film that we're going to be talking about she's dealing with teenagers and you know, trying to corral young talent, it's kind of like herding cats. You really 
can't count on what you're going to get. You have to have a really, really deft touch to get what you want from them as opposed to, you know, an actor like Kate Blanchett, who you can just flip the switch and say action and she'll give you what you need. That is comes down to the hands of the director. So clearly that comes down to Celine Scamma and the team that she puts around her and her four features so far are all incredible with, you know, the one that we're going to start with portrait of a lady on fire being her clicking on all cylinders to create an absolute masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah. I am. I I think I totally agree um, with her like observational approach, the show don't tell. Um, And I think her, the way she works with actors um, and like, I don't, I don't know how she does it. And I like kind of wish I could see her on set, but I think it's her ability to work with these actors and sort of collaborate with them that creates these amazing um, results. And I think, I feel like she approaches it almost like a collaboration, which is something I'll probably talk about later too, um, especially with Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I just feel like her approach to filmmaking is very collaborative, which is another thing that I find really interesting about her and another thing that I think makes her so successful. Yeah, and and for me, it felt like someone else just knows how to capture the interior of you know, the female experience better than anyone I've seen before. And I've certainly seen, you know, some filmmakers, you know, almost have like a, I I think I've described it before as kind of like an introverted style of filmmaking where it's not, not everything is explicit and spelled out even through dialogue or, you know, like Ryan was saying, it, it is true visual storytelling that you don't necessarily need the dialogue it's all spoken there through body language. And there's just this kind of like purity of emotion that is not always spelled out, which makes kind of like the feeling of desire more of a mystery rather than something specifically based on lust, even though you know (laughs) that these characters are looking at each other and feeling desire, but it's, it's, and it's not to say that like uh, stories of forbidden love haven't been done before because they have, and in a lot of different ways, but this, the majority of her work just feels emotionally honest and told with such graceful care and attention and stillness at times. Mm-hmm. Like I was really, when you go through the majority of the films with maybe the exception of girlhood, there's not a lot of needle drops. There's not a lot of score blaring at you. Uh, I mean, especially when you think of portrait of a lady on fire, it is about, the sound design of the fire. Yeah. Uh, I was in the back. When I was watching that again to prep for this, um, I guess it was actually the first time I think I'd watched it with headphones. Um, mm. So you can, yeah. the sound was really coming through in a different way. And it, yeah, the sound design is like really stunning. And it's, I think aside from that one singing scene by the fire, it doesn't have a soundtrack at all. I think the others do. Um, it may not be, I don't think it's a very present soundtrack for any of them. Although Girlhood has that like sort of electronic thing going on. Yeah, for sure. And of course the uh, Rihanna moment, which is just oh, yeah. glorious. <laughs> she she knows uh, how to use a needle drop when she has to. Yeah. It's and, and yeah, I think that's something I appreciated a a lot, you know, and, and similar to like filmmakers like Sofia Coppola and, and Wong Kar Wai that 
make it all about the feelings of the characters rather than just let's be, you know, cinematic and showy and, you know, have the camera go every which way. It's, it's really about the intimacy, I think, um, you know, not just of characters interacting, but of creating art, especially with something like portrait of a lady on fire. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of about uh, the joy of discovering a human being, you know, and, and, and their face and, their body movements and just, I mean, that's reflected obviously as she's trying to sketch, you know, this person out and learn about her and learn about what she's thinking and feeling. And I think that reflects in the person watching the movie. Like you, you're on that same wavelength. You are on that same journey as she is, as she's discovering this person. And then you're discovering that they're both growing towards one another with this same sort of vulnerability. But I think water lilies is an interesting place for her to start uh, too, because there is that same sort of vulnerability going on with a different age range. And certainly (laughs) I recognize the awkwardness of being that age and, you know, feeling desire for the first time. Uh, And we go back to a younger um, Adele Hey, how do you say her last name? Hey, Nell, I think. Hey, Nell. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Really bad with pronunciations, especially with the French. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, that was her sort of breakout role at the time. And, you know, it's interesting to see her then, you know, and sort of as this leader of a synchronized swimming team kind of being idealized by um, someone a little bit younger that's developing a crush on her. But I think much like a lot of Scamma's work, there is, you know, just a genuine focus on characters being in their natural world, but often colliding into different personality types, especially during such a fragile time, you know, that you're sort of discovering who you are, who you want to be with, who you want to surround yourself with. And I think that's true of, you know, it's, it's almost like a trilogy, right? Like her first three films are all you could call it like a coming of age trilogy. Yeah, I think she actually has referred to them as a, a like an unofficial trilogy. Um, and they, yeah, a coming of age trilogy. You know, the one thing, sorry to kind of go back a bit for a second when you were talking about the actual experience of, of, soaking in these films and you know we're talking about like the the art of capturing them um i have a running theory that i've never entirely been able to prove and and i actually haven't dug into it deeply so it's not just that i have i've done the math and haven't been able to make it add up but when kate when you were talking about before about um the female gaze um skiama has an interesting element to her filmmaking in that all of her four features she has worked with a female dp which is mm-hmm. rare mm. in Hall, rare in film in general, but rare and especially in Hollywood because it, uh, you know the director of photography is very, very, very much a boys' club. And I have a running theory that when it comes to, um, you know, films directed by women, there's an added lift when it's not just directed by women, but it's shot by a woman as well. Because I feel as though there is either a shorthand spoken between the director and the camera woman, or just an inherent instinct on how something needs to be captured that you do not see when it's a guy behind the, the lens. Do you see any of that in, in the work that Scamma's put together so far? 
Yeah, I think I probably agree with that. Um, I feel like if I if I was Colleen Siyama, and I haven't like read any interview specifically about this, I think um, there's sort of a political goal just to like work with more women um, in general and hire more women. Um, so I think that's a big part of it too, is just like a conscious decision for more of the people working on these films to be women. Right. But I also, um, I do agree. I think, I think there's, I think it's easier maybe for women shooting other women to not, to know how to shoot them and not objectify them and how to sort of be in their world without, um, especially for these films with these young women, young girls. Um, I think it, it can be really tricky to navigate that space, especially I think for probably American viewers We're obviously, I mean, that whole thing with um, cuties. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Controversy? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I was um, thinking about that watching water lilies yesterday. I was like, if somebody's seen cuties, they're going to hate this. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I think, for a lot of especially Americans, even showing this stuff is just bad or like they're they're automatically like, oh, like nudity of 15 year olds automatically bad, um, which it's not. Um, I think it's important to show normal teenage bodies. And I think it's OK, especially um, if you're thinking about coming of age and gender and sexuality and how those things emerge. Um I think you just have to observe um, the body in space and in these like these pool environments. Um, So it's definitely, definitely tricky. And I do think um, female cinematographers um, and DPs probably have a sense um, of how to safely manage that than male cinematographers might. So I think it's, yeah, it's a, it's an idea worth thinking about. It was just, it was something I came across, um, several years ago. I, I did the, the, you know, there's a project out there online of 52 films by women, you know, trying to push, uh, film viewers to, you know, commit to one new film by a woman every week. And I did it a few years ago and I came, I came across, is it, uh, I think it's Palo Alto by Gia Coppola. And I, oh, you know, I noticed it felt different than everything else I'd been seeing up until then. And I couldn't quite figure out why. And I think it was the first one that had come across that was directed and shot by two different women. And I think it went even one further and it had a woman in the editing room as well. So you're right. Like I'm, I'm certain that she's trying to lift up um, women behind the scenes as much as she can and, you know, kind of pass on the, the good fortune that she's had. But it just, it's one thing that I always kind of latch on to is because it's a visual medium if you have a woman dictating the visual you get something that's you know it it sounds sick to say this but it's unique because we're not as used to it because it's usually guys who bring you know it could just be the difference of bringing the camera up or sorry bringing the camera down a little bit too low and like you say objectifying the female who's on the other side of the lens right and I also think um, there's a way that women work together um, oh, yeah. that just is more collaborative. And I like, I think, um, I don't know, I've never been on a set, so I can't say how directing a film works, but I know as a woman in certain environments that, you know, men talk over you um, 
in a way that other women don't usually. <laughs> I'm not going to say all the time. Um, so I would, if I was Celine Sciamma making a film, I would also work with other women just to be sure, or not, not just women, but maybe avoid the straight men. <laughs> um, just to make sure that people are listening to you um, because sometimes men don't take you seriously, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, and I think, yeah. yeah, I mean, all women directors deserve to be taken seriously and especially <laughs> Celine Sciamma. Definitely. Now this, these, these are all great points and it's something that uh, I think distinguishes her work from something like blue is the warmest color. I think that's kind of being an obvious example, especially with the controversy of how that director chose to shoot the sex scene in that and how it really lingers. Yeah, absolutely. Quite a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't uh, think that's always bad. Like thinking of, no, um, it's not. I know some people have problem have trouble with the handmaiden sex scenes, which I don't as much. Um, <laughs> but I did have a problem with blue is the warmest color. <laughs> yeah, I even I felt like I don't think I don't know. <laughs> it's clear that there's some creepiness with this the way the director is choosing to shoot this, and I I yeah I definitely noticed that because it's really it's not focused on like on on, on body parts. And it's not like focused on necessarily like just sexuality in a way that, yeah, it was, is lingering and, and certainly the way the camera is framing things, you know, it's, it's focusing on the neck, the face, the hands and ways that feel more sensual. Obviously there's, you know, uh, certainly uh, sexuality, but it feels I don't even want to say the word gentle, but it just feels if it's, it's a little bit reserved in a way that I think is refreshing. And yet it's, it's also, you know, really, you know, <laughs> hot too. <Yeah. laughs> and, you know, just because of the movie, I mean, you know, fire in general. <laughs> <laughs> That, that's the thing is, is, you know, I, I guess maybe there's this preconception that unless you film sexuality in a certain way, it's not going, you know, and, and if it is your goal, it's not going to titillate, but there, there, there's, yeah. there's more than one way to do anything. And I don't understand why approaching it from the different point of view, why, why, why approaching it from a more feminine perspective is inherently bad when it can still draw you right into this physical connection and like you say still arouse in some some part of you some form some way yeah i would agree with that and i think that um well one of the reasons why i added uh chantelle ackerman to my list for next year was because of skiyama saying that she's one of the most important filmmakers and at the same time been a blind spot and certainly the one of her movies is almost four hours long but <laughs> i'm i'm very curious to see her influence like just what inspired her as a filmmaker uh and certain she also cited interestingly david lynch which i can kind of see more with portrait of a lady on fire again with the focus on fire and the sound design being so key uh and you know certainly the moment where they're all gathered together uh, on the, on the beach and we see her dress catch on fire. It's, 
to me, that's like one of the best moments of the decade. Like that, that whole sequence, I, I get chills in ways that very few movies can um, conjure up because it's, it's saying so much in that moment. Yeah. It's fantastic. Uh, I think it's incredible that this is a film that has several iconic moments. Like you can, you could point to that one. You could point to the painting that she sees at the end where the page is marked. You could point to the conclusion of this movie. There's so you can point to the moment where we first have that hood drop and we see Adele's hair for the first time. There's so there's several moments in this movie that are so just jaw droppingly rendered that, that, you know, when we come back to this being a masterpiece, that's why there's a lot of films out there that would give their right arm just to have one of these moments, let alone (laughs) half a dozen. Yeah. I was, um, I was trying to watch this again, Um, And I was planning to skip through it and just like look at the big scenes. Um, But when I was going through it, I realized I couldn't do that. I had to watch it all the (laughs) way through because none of the scenes in it are superfluous at all. And that's one of the things that I think is so amazing about it. Yeah. And I, I, I feel that way about the majority of her work. Like, you know, you can, you can tell maybe something like water lilies is a, is a debut, Mm -hmm. but I think there's still uh, a fragility to it that, you know, I, I, I described it to a couple of people too, is it plays a lot like one of my favorite movies, which, you know, again, we are dealing with the male perspective with uh, Lucas Moodyson's show me love, uh, which is also known as a fucking a mall, which is a really (laughs) incredible movie about first love. And just the awkward for a long time. And I haven't gotten to it yet. Yeah, it's very similar to Water Lilies. Uh, I think the age range might be, they might be a little bit younger, but I, I, I I just felt, you know, right at home with these characters because, you know, there, there were times when, you know, I wasn't, wasn't sure as to who I was and who I wanted to surround myself with. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of that cliche thing of clicks of like, which one am I going to be a part of or which type of group am I, am I going to fit in with? And, you know, ultimately it did become the, you know, like the, the theater nerds, but um, around the time of the, you know, age group of the characters in, in water lilies, it certainly was this time of exploration and figuring things out and even hanging out with people that I know <laughs> I grew to not like so much because of the way they see the world. But uh yeah, I just it's it's a really it's a really strong debut with two really great performances, and I, you know it was shot in her hometown, which she described as like this place that has this unique look, but it also defies specificity. And because like it's one of those towns where I'm like, yeah, this this could be you know where I grew up in a way, and these people I know, uh, you know, like the the kind that yeah have things to say in the locker room or whatever that make you feel like, you know, really small and insignificant. I, I, I know those moments. So any, any movie I think that depicts this age range, I automatically connect with just because yeah, I was there. And I think the most of us have yeah, been, it's absolutely like a weird age. Um, when I feel like your body is changing and just, maybe your mind hasn't quite caught up with it or maybe it's ahead, but there's just this weird like in between time where your body is becoming adult, but you're still very much a kid. Um, 
and you're sort of navigating these very adult situations like having crushes and sexuality but you're really still trying to figure out who you are and it's all sort of a process of figuring out who you are also Um, also the way that your emotions are always dialed up to 11 like yeah Every falling out with a friend feels like it's the end of the world. Every new cute person feels like your whole world has just opened up. It, it like it's a it, it's kind of a minor miracle that any of us gets to age twenty. It really is. <laughs> yeah, it's, it certainly is, and I, I, I think that um, you know transitioning into into tomboy. Uh, that's, you know, again, another movie, and I'm sure there are other examples, but, you know, Kate, maybe you could speak to this a little bit too, is are there really great films about gender fluidity? And I, I, like this one to me really felt like the summation of it, that, that again, like she understood this character and understood what they're experiencing. And yet like I, it's, it's, it's kind of remarkable to me because she like wrote this in three weeks completed casting in three weeks and shot the film in 20 days. Yeah. <laughs> it felt so organic and it just flows beautifully. Um, but I mean, I'm sure there are other examples of the, of this story being told. Uh, but I can't think of to any. Me, again, I mean, the, yeah, I think you're right. There probably, there might be, but. I feel like there was a more recent one that might've played the F- Chicago International Film Festival. And I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> but, but this definitely felt yeah, very singular I, to me when I saw it and very surprising. Um, I was just really moved by it. I think Tomboy was the first Siama film I saw, and it really did make an impression on me. <laughs> um, I was just amazed at the really, I think you said gentle already, Jim, but I think it, it is. Um, yeah. Like the affection for all the people involved in this is really clear. And I think the way Skiama worked with this actress um, must have been, I don't know. Um, but I think this actress is very special and I think she was very well cast. And I think the story of her casting, I think was that um, she was at an agency, um, but Skiama asked for someone um, I think who hadn't gotten any roles and <laughs> they came up with this, this actress who is like so amazing. Um, you can just like leave the camera on her and just like this real beauty comes out. She is very in- just engaging to watch. Um, and as, as uh, she shifts through these different like modes um, that are both very organic between Laure or Lore, I guess, and Mikhail. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's just like you wish um, <laughs> that her parents could be as gentle as Celine Skiyama seems to be with her. <laughs> um, because the, the most tragic thing about this movie is when um, her mother finds out or his mother. Um, and I think, the pronouns are really kind of up in the air, which is another interesting thing. I don't think any of the pronouns you use for this kid are wrong necessarily. I think they're very much trying to figure it out themselves. Um, yeah, for sure. But it's it's very interesting to me that the mother, when she finds out 
um, just has no imagination to figure out how um, they could integrate Mikhail into their life somehow. Um, the mother's just like, no, this can't go on because this is the way things are. And it's really tragic. Yeah, it showcases just like how particularly the adult world enforces gender binaries, you know, and how that that limits the human experience. And I, I think, you know, Skiyama is really focused on subverting heteronormativity in ways that I, I find refreshing and very empathic. And it's certainly, you know, when I was, when I was teaching for a couple of years as a music teacher and I, it was one of the first experiences I had with somebody who you know, was transgender and decided to change their name, but the parents wanted us teachers to, you know, when we write reports and everything to refer to them, you know, by, by their birth name. And it was, it was just this really difficult experience because I cared, you know, very much for the student and what they wanted, but we were forced more or less to become oh, the, because the parents are the ones paying, uh, we gotta, you know, respect what they want. Yeah. And that just it irked me to no end. And, you know, it's experiencing this story here certainly brought up a lot of emotions that I you know, kind of experienced in that situation. But, uh, I, I really do think this is a great, uh, work of art and certainly something that was, uh, shown in, in, French schools for educational purposes. And I think that's really great. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, really. It's, it's, it's crazy because it's, it's a, it's hard to say that a movie is both timely and ahead of its time. And yet Tomboy really feels Mm -hmm. like that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think it really showcases what we've already talked about the way that Skiama just sort of observes, um, And it's really powerful here to see the way that children are already like just absorbing these ideas of what masculinity and femininity are through their play, um, through the way the boys exclude that one girl, um, through like the type of play they have. And that's what I think makes this so interesting to watch um, is all the ways just watching these kids um, hang out together. and how you get the sense that even they're still learning these roles too. Um, and <laughs> it's very interesting when um, Mikhail's mother outs her uh, and <laughs> forces her to go to these people's houses um, in a dress and how the other kids don't really seem to know what to make of it. Um <laughs> I don't know. Uh, just not, they don't react in the same way that the parents do, obviously, because they have, I think, some kind of understanding from hanging out with this kid um, that the parents don't have. But it's all, it's all very fascinating to watch. The children are, are accepting, and I'm sh- and children in general will accept the reality that is just presented to them, right? So if you have a little girl that looks like a little boy and and says that they're a boy, then okay, you're a boy. You know, I'm not going to make you pull down your pants and show me. It it reminds me of I'm remembering my very first experience with a lesbian couple was our neighbors 
two doors over. And I didn't actually put it together until much later that they were a queer couple. But I just, I was just like, they are together. They are a team. They are a unit. Just, okay, they are. I never asked my mom, how come they live together or how come there's not a guy? It was just, it was the reality that I recognized. And that's, that's what you were saying before. Like these gender norms are more, are, are tightly in the fist of the parent. kind of getting back again to what Jim was saying about, you know, how the, the parents of his, his students were dictating the names and the pronouns that were to be used. That I think is, is what's, you know, inherent into this movie as well is, the kids are kids are going to be dicks anyway, but kids are also going to accept the reality that's presented to them. So maybe this is the thing that the, one of the things that this film wants to say is a lot of the time it's the adults that are in the way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Not like they don't. They do bully Mikhail a little bit um, mm-hmm. when they find out. But then at the very end, you get this sense of reconciliation mm-hmm. um, that they especially with um, the girl that Mikhail has been, Mikhail has been um, hanging out with or sort of having a relationship with um, that they're like going to be okay with this new reality and new knowledge and that they're going to go forward somehow with it. Um, Yeah. And I don't think that this movie (laughs) intends to make the parents a villain in any way. They just, don't understand and i almost think feel like her mother is trying to she thinks she's being helpful um (laughs) and i guess in a way she is establishing the fact that (laughs) that binary is real um and there are going to be ways that it's unavoidable um like talking about that stuff or like having to fit into one or another, even though that's not the world that we want. That's the world we have right now. Yeah. It really, it really frustrates me that even someone, you know, like, like my mom, it's, I I mean, I don't expect her to completely understand, but she doesn't try. That's what I think. Like to me, empathy is just a part of my DNA to where I'm like, I, I want to understand, and that's why that's why I love movies too. Because, geez, I get to have these experiences where I'm immersed into different cultures and different lives that I never have had any experience with whatsoever myself. But I get to learn, and I get to feel emotions that are tied to these outside experiences. But the, I mean, I I always just sort of maybe it's not the smartest thing to do, but I always just go well different generation you know my my mom's from a different time and <laughs> it's just not gonna happen where she's gonna be as open-minded or you know and it's you know certainly we've had maybe experiences with grandparents or heck we may even have family members that voted for trump <clears throat> um and it's just uh it's just something that you have to look past due to you know unconditional love but you know, I think, like I said, it just frustrates me that, yeah, you know, certainly the parents in this film don't make any attempt. It's just like they're immediately dismissive. Oh, but then I wanted to think about the sister as well, um, because the sister oh, yeah. is an amazing character. <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. and I think sisterhood is something that comes up in girlhood as well. Just um, the relationship that Laura has with her sister, um, Mikhail has with his sister, um, 
it's just really special and she's confused for a second too like she's like why are you doing this <laughs> but then she seems to realize that it makes him happy and that's sort of what seems to matter for her um <laughs> that's that's so great to have something like that and um there's also as i was watching this again um there's a, there's a portrait scene in it that just jumped right out at me because of her most recent movie um, but this little sister is painting a portrait of um, of Mikhail, and it's very interesting. Um, just a very interesting parallel um, because if you the the drawing itself is just amazing. <laughs> it's like um, what like the kind of thing that a kid draws, but she's taking it very seriously. Um, it's just a very interesting, I think, question about. Um, just sort of what these kids are seeing and how they're um, understanding the world. And part of that is through, I guess, imitation of their adults, the adults around them. Um, but there is an interesting, I think actually it's the, the, um, the, what is the word I'm looking for? The poster, the movie poster. Mm -hmm. I think um, mm -hmm. that's the scene where Mikhail is sitting for that portrait Um and sort of wondering like yeah, what it is right. that <laughs> what is it that her sister sees um and that's sort of the the audience perspective we get um probably through that that poster and through through the film no that's all great too i i, I thought about the you know looking at the different posters and certainly just the uh specific choices of which moments to portray, uh, you know, to, to, to get people interested, but more or less just to stay true to the film. Um, and also the, the movie I was thinking of that didn't stick with me because I'd seen it like in a sea of screeners two years ago is, and I don't know if this was when we were covering the festival together, Kate, but there was a movie called they, um, and, it was from, I think it was from 2018. And the, the, the issue I had with that was that it was almost too dreamlike and, and not as observant. It's just kind of, kind of flows in a way that I almost found off-putting as opposed to like engaging, but it was about a 14 year old who's exploring gender identity and just kind of trying to make the decision of whether or not to transition after after taking some medication and going to therapy and things like that. Um, but I mean, it, it sort of covers that ground, but not in the same way. It's more of a, just kind of like a, almost like a stream of consciousness experience where it was, you know, maybe too uh, like surreal at times to, to really connect in a human way, which, you know, because I, I love, I, I do like these stories and certainly coming of age films in general. But that one to me, I think the reason why I forgot about it was like, Oh, it, it didn't really stick with me as much as something like uh, tomboy does. But that, that, that was an example of another story that uh, people should certainly see if they can find it. It's called they, that I think Is that a French movie. Also? Are, I don't think okay. so. I, yeah, I want to say it was, Oh, is it Italian? No, it's, yeah, I'm not familiar with that one, but... So, um, in Canada, it's on Amazon Prime, so thanks for that. I just added it to oh, my nice. watch list. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's worth seeing, but it's just very, like I said, kind of dreamlike, possibly to a fault to where you don't necessarily connect with the character in the way okay. that you do with, with Tom. But it's still, still worth, worth, I still time think it's well worth spent. seeing. Yeah, no, definitely. It's like, you know, 80 minutes long and, you know, worth, worth checking out. Uh, but as we transition over into the, the next film, uh, Girlhood, which I... You know, again, I hadn't caught up with it, even though it was very acclaimed the year it was released. And it certainly felt to me like as being a little bit more energetic and vibrant in, in you know, and not to say that the other films aren't vibrant. It's just like I mentioned before, especially the use of music here, you know, that 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 sequence in which a group of friends sing and dance to uh, Diamonds by Rihanna is beautiful. And one of the moments that will forever stay with me. But I think, you know, she seemed interested in just what it means to join a group of, of individuals in, you know, in, in hopes of like feeling connected and experiencing friendship more on a, a macro level. And, and, and what does that mean? And the, like just this, this desire to be accepted and to derive strength from that acceptance and, and belonging to a community. But I think like, something else that occurred to me watching all these films, there's a lot of moments of freedom where you just have these stretches of time in your life when you can do whatever you want and hopefully find people that want to do the same things with you that, that you just feel like, okay, I I'm, I'm not under sort of any control, whether if it's parental or otherwise, or I'm not stuck at a nine to five or whatever. And you're just having experiences and you're just trying out different things with people and, you know, hanging out in ways that like Richard Linkletter would capture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's certainly drama here. There's certainly like the, you know, the, the abusive older brother and j- just like the choice to join this certain group of people. And what does it all mean? And how is she going to break free from everything that's expected of her? I, I really found this movie to be uh, excellent in the same ways I found her other films to be. Yeah. Um- I think for me, one of the things I I found, I find, I should say, really fascinating about this film in comparison to her other three is it's beautiful to see Skiama breaking out of any kind of particular molds. Like her four films, they have a lot of common themes and a lot of common tropes. But if you put the four of them in a set, you know, aside from the through line of femininity, you don't really have one common theme. It's not like she's always telling period stories or she's always telling uh, modern stories here. The careful choice not to tell the story of a white girl is really important because we can get bogged down with a lot of whiteness in film and you don't get the full representation that you would when you start getting to more intersectionality. So girlhood being about, you know, Parisian. And I can't remember if they're immigrants or if they're just like first generation French girls. Um, Cause it's been a hot minute since I, since I've seen girlhood, even though a lot of it has stuck with me. Um, I think that that's key that to, to tell this story and make sure that it holds the same sort of importance as 19th century French women living on a deserted island. Um, And especially kind of further to that point, telling the story of 
black girls in Paris that are darker skin too, because there is beauty standards that are assigned to women of color that again, representation tends to skew. So you can see somebody over the course of her career, like Holly Berry getting a lot more roles than somebody like Lupita Nyong'o does. And there is a reason for that. So having women like this be the crux of this story again tells me the kind of decisions that Skiama works through in her head when it comes to what kind of stories that she wants to bring to light and makes me appreciate her that much more. Yeah, I, I agree with that too. Um, I, I think it's really good that she chose to showcase black women or black girls really in this. Um, And I don't, I feel like even in America, we don't get enough of that. Um, but I was reading some interviews with the girls she worked with, um, Karija Torre and uh, Asa Silla. <laughs> I'm probably brutalizing those names. Um, but um, they were in their interview, I think it was in The Guardian. They were talking about how um, Black girls in France actually look to America for representation, um, which I found really surprising because in America, we don't think of it as very good. <laughs> um, but I think yeah. that they're right that in France, there's like a real dearth of um, representation. And I think I know there's been some criticism um, of this film that um, I mean, Skama is a white director. Um, and I think there was some fears about her sort of rep- like reproducing stereotypes Um which is a real fear and a pot. Like, I think that like, it's not wrong. (laughs) I think that there might be some stereotypes in this film um, that are worth exploring. Um, But I also know that Skiama is open to that kind of dialogue she's mentioned. Um, And I do think I'm just, I think she's, she is kind of, if it's brave for doing it, um, Although I do want to see this kind of movie from a black director. Um, I think representation is good. Um, And I, yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And and I think that it's something that I've struggled with too, because, you know, at at some point I thought about writing from the, you know, from the perspective or creating a story surrounding somebody who was, um, you know, non-binary. And then I thought, wait a minute, I, I, but, it's that it's that thing with you know write what you know that always kind of stuck with me from writing classes like write from your personal experience write what you know write the worlds that you grew up in but I also have a curiosity and a, you know a desire to be a part or create other characters and I think you know I don't want to limit myself to that either and I'm sure that's her case as well it's I I don't think her intent necessarily was to create stereotypes even if maybe it came out that way in certain instances yeah i think um i do think she did a good job um and i like i'm curious to hear from other critics who have pointed this out especially black critics um yeah but for the most part i do think um it's like because of the way she does really just focus on these girls and she's just um, like, as with her other projects, um, just kind of bringing out their um, 
points of view and their identities um, and personalities that like really keeps it away from going into stereotype land. Um, I'm sure she was very collaborative yeah. with everybody. So it wouldn't fall into stereotype, you know, land <laughs> the entire way through. And yeah, I just, I mean, I, th- I, I think that um, she sort of fights those stereotypes, uh, you know, of what a, a young woman in that situation is, is expected to become by, you know, transforming her experiences into something that she can control or at least have agency over, you know, I, th- I, I feel, you know, in, in the end, that's kind of what she's striving for at least. And to, to just be able to be her own person. And at the same time, it's normal to want to belong to any sort of group that you look up to or seem way cooler. And I, you know, that's kind of what I understand, you know, why people fall into certain uh, groups without even thinking about it. You know, it's just, just, it's just in our nature. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And I think that Skiama is like really interested in that. And I think, I feel like this is the Mm -hmm. film um, more than any of them that does sort of explore that. Um, Like it explores friendship, I think more than any of her other films do. Um, And just like what, what makes friendship work um, and like what what is it about this group of girls that captivates her um, even if she moves on from them inevitably um, but this I like how this film is sort of in these loose chapters um, where it starts out with her just sort of on her own um, and then she gets inducted into this group um, where she <laughs> where she like engages in street fighting. Um, But also like there's that really amazing scene in the hotel room that leads to that Rihanna song. Um, Yeah. And also I think my, another one of my favorites, I think they're back in a hotel room um, after she's decided that she's going to um, go with this other guy and, um, I think work for him as a dealer Um, and they all end up she and her friends just sort of collapse on the bed together and fall asleep um, just like in a pile of people which is something I I definitely remember from being a teenage girl Um, you just get a lot of um, power and a lot of comfort from just being physical with each other <laughs> not in a sexual way but just like um yeah. and, and, and she really like um observes those moments like when they're dancing together when they're on the bed cuddling or on the bed just laughing together um and how how sometimes like there is sort of amount of like a certain amount of performance when you're with friends but she also breaks through to those uh, those more raw moments, I think. I just, yeah, I'm very into yeah, this also, movie. I also found it interesting that, you know, because for the most part, I, I wasn't necessarily seeing the, 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 the gender identity or the gender dynamics explored here as, you know, much as her other two films. And here it's, at one point she is, 
she's taking on a role when she's selling drugs, really, you know, she's wearing a, a blonde wig or making, making the conscious choice not to be sexualized because she even wears loose baggy clothing. And I, you know, I find that interesting. Like, is that kind of commenting on the fact that like, while I'm a drug dealer, I feel more empowered in like, like a man, well, you know, it's the crazy I, thing is one of the gender dynamics actually comes up really early in the film when she and her friends are walking away from the, the football game that opens the movie, which I mean, as an opening yeah. scene that, 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 that shot that scene is incredible of, of the girls of the Parisian girls playing football, American football. Um, and they're walking away from their game or their, their scrimmage or whatever it is. And they cut through They're They're talking away and chattering away the way that teenage girls always do. And they get, you know, 10 yards or so away from a group of boys and you watch them all hush up. You know, these are some very empowered, very physical, very free spirited young women who are just, you know, they're living their life. And then all of a sudden, oh, there's boys, you know, so and, and you watch it just just the conversation just drops and it's not they don't make a big the movie doesn't make a big deal of it. The movie doesn't linger on it and they, they get going again, but it makes a point to include that, that here are some girls who are defying the normal stereotypes for French girls that, you know, but yet they're still going to adhere to some of the stereotypes because there are boys in the room, which, you know, like Kate was saying before, when you get even just one man into the room, it changes the whole dynamic, you know? So, and and that is, that, that comes from an early age. So keeping that at the beginning of this movie I think I thought was just a really, really great shorthand way of saying this is one of the things we're going to talk about. Yeah. And like you said, not calling direct attention to it, it just yeah. sort of happens. Yeah. And it's funny yeah. because, you know, we're, we've touched a few times on that hotel room scene and, and the, the, the choice of diamonds by Rihanna, which plays in its entirety, I really hope that it, like my one of the things is I bet that song was expensive, so they decided we're going to use the whole thing. Um, but oh, I, there's actually a story about that. Um, they there? had to re- they had to ask Rihanna um, for permission, okay, um, and she gave it to them for a discount because um, she liked what they did so much. Oh, cool. Okay, yeah. So this has oh. Rihanna's seal of approval on it. Um, and I think they didn't have to pay what the cost would have been, which oh. I'm not sure exactly how high that was, but it wasn't, it wouldn't have been feasible. <laughs> I don't think for this production. Well, one, yeah. one of the things I'll always remember is um, a male critic who I know when this film came out, he and I were talking about it. He didn't care much for it. And one of the shorthand criticisms he used for it was any film that gives that much time to lip syncing to Rihanna and really needs to think about what it wants to do to you know which i was thinking in my head i'm like no it's because we don't see scenes like that in their entirety that it's there you know we totally would, yeah we would not say the same thing about a three minute battle sequence in an action film but yet four girls in a hotel room lip syncing to an rmb you know banger it's like no we got to cut that down yeah, that's wild to me because <laughs> yeah. like, this scene um, is really what makes me love the film. And you can mm-hmm. tell, I mean, if you're really watching it, it's not, um, I guess, what <laughs> what Jim referred to as a needle drop. It's not, um, it definitely knows what it's doing. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think 
I I don't know how men um, or how boys or teenagers spend their time so much, but I know that um, this is like this is a thing. Sure. Like I saw myself in that scene, um, and like I, it's kind of amazing to see your um, experience reflected in that way. Um, it is like it's like this little musical number i mean i feel like almost all her films are sort of they have this musical moment um which is really important um because i think i mean musicals are just a way of i think they're a lot of times just pure emotion on screen um and it's just this way of getting out things that you can't necessarily in a normal drama yeah <laughs> and i, I think i, I could not express what i'm feeling with word please let me break into song right <laughs> <laughs> um and there's it just like phil fits into the whole theme of the movie um just it's about play um and an identity and like lip syncing to any song is just you're pretending to be someone else you're pretending maybe to be rihanna or like that you're in the club but you can't be in the club because you're underage and you're just in a hotel room with friends instead. It's such a beautiful um, moment that I think especially women watching it um, just feel, oh, I don't know if you can hear my dog just entering the <laughs> chat. Um, but I think it especially resonates for women who, who have like done this very thing and probably with Rihanna <laughs> because this is an amazing song also that they chose to showcase in this way it's just i love it am i remembering wrong or doesn't at least one character still have either a price tag or a security tag on her dress i think they all do yeah you're remembering right <laughs> and that's and that's kind of what you're getting at right is on a surface level like they haven't they're not keeping these clothes they're wearing the hotel room that they're in is it's it's okay it's not fancy but for the but it, it's 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 all right and for these four girls it's just a complete escape like they're they've just they've closed off their world to all adults to all you know any all comers who just are not going to get past their version of a velvet rope and they can just like let themselves go and like you say like kind of like fall asleep on a pile and just be whoever they want to be for a night or two and on a on the surface level it's it's not you know it's not real it is not real at all they have to return the dresses and that room is still shitty but for them it, it's just an escape from, you know, the day to day at the best that they can do. Yeah. It's, it's very, a very moving scene. And I think, I feel like it might be easy to dismiss it. <laughs> um, but there's just a lot going on there. Maybe the guy didn't like Rihanna. I don't know. True. <laughs> also wrong, but oh, right. <laughs> exactly. yes. Preach. Yeah, and I just perfect description, pure pure emotion, uh, with with just the, the all of her work. And for me, when I saw Portrait of a Lady on Fire for the first time, I actually went, "That was a very good movie." <laughs> and then, then the second time I saw, I'm like, "Oh, this is an amazing movie." And the more I watch it, the more I find to love about it, and there's just uh, I have to take a sigh a moment. <laughs> um, when I was rewatching this, um, Maureen, my wife, uh, she didn't want to see the whole thing with me 
um, but she was like, call me in for the Rihanna scene. <laughs> and so we watched that together. Nice. Yeah. But I mean, it's uh, her, her latest film. It just like uh, envelops you in ways that very few movies can. And there, there's just like this, this, this suspense of discovering a face. And like you mentioned, when the hood comes down, and it's just like what you know you're about to discover this person too and the fact that that you know uh <laughs> the painting that we see we only see it at the beginning and the title of the film is spoken and i'm just kind of like that is you don't see that that like just that that choice is brilliant um the painting itself is beautiful uh and and just like how this film sort of culminates uh, and you know how that final moment is all about this internalized feeling that just speaks volumes while an orchestra is playing. I mean, I just I can go on and on and on. Like like we were talking about the highlights of this film. There's so many of them, but I think like you know we were talking about earlier, listening to this with headphones and realizing, gosh, there's there's very little in terms of background noise except the fire or just the the sound of the rain outside and. Notably, um, the sound of them I mean, breathing, yeah. <laughs> things like that. Yeah. Guys, we exactly. have to give it up to this movie because there are lots of movies out there that include the title within the film. And I, I always want to have a little bell that I can <laughs> ring. But this movie, this movie doubled down because not only was there a portrait of a lady on fire, but later in this film, they takes a portrait of a lady and sets it on fire. This film has layers, guys. Exactly layers i tell you yeah i yeah one of the things i was writing down as i was watching this again was just wondering if it's like celine skiyama's self-portrait in a way um because the way hmm. that um the portrait <laughs> the titular portrait um ends up being sort of a collaborative effort a collaborative effort between the two women just made made me think of how um, Celine Sciamma works with her actors and also with the, all the other notable collaborators in this film, like the person who did make those paintings, um, which is someone um, Celine Sciamma approached, I think just um, being a fan of her work. I'm trying to remember the person's name, um, but she is also a woman painter. Elenda um, Mare. Yeah, there it is. Um, and she, she's like a really key part of all of this too. She paints all the portraits in it and it's her hand painting whenever, um, whenever you see. Um, yeah. Close yeah. Up of, yeah. Um, and the fact that she was, I don't think at the time dating Adele Hanel, but they were together for quite a while. I think after water lilies. Yeah, they were, they were together. I'm not sure um, when they broke up, but. It was right before they made this movie <laughs> from what I read. Yeah. Which has got to be an interesting experience to basically direct. <laughs> I think that's a very like lesbian experience, honestly. <laughs> I mean, there's a the joke about the lesbian community is that we're all exes of each other. Um, Cause it's a relatively small community. <laughs> um, so I think, I think that's really funny that she's directing her ex in it. And they obviously, they have a very amiable close relationship too. Um, I know. I think they're still like really good friends, and I know they they walked out of that. Oh, yeah. Was it the Cesars when Polanski yeah. won? 
Yeah. And I know they mm-hmm. walked out together. Yeah. And, Ad- and Adele was the one who was more vocal about it too. It was, yeah. it's, it's, it's crazy because I mean, it's, it's the most, it's kind of the feminist version of Kanye storming the stage. It's like, no, no, no. This is how you protest an award going wrong. Yeah. You know, <laughs> totally. And rightfully so. Layers, guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this film has so, so many. Where do, you, where do you even start talking oh, about this film? I think one of the things I want to kind of highlight about this film, and it, it is really inherent to Skiama's work, but it's kind of on steroids in this film, is she pays such attention to getting her actors to put the performance into their eyes. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I, I've, there's, I've seen before how somebody can be feigning through emotion, how somebody can be, you know, in front of a bunch of TV cameras behind a microphone, you know, potentially like expressing their contrition for something that they've done wrong. And yet you look at their eyes are just blank. You know, you can only act through so much before your eyes will betray you. And yet time after time after time in this movie, um, Adele and her co-star, Nomi Merlin, have it in their eyes, their sadness, their adoration, their fascination, their friendship. It's all it's it's never faked. And that's got to be so damn hard to get to that place. But it, it's a credit that these women were able to get to that place time after time after time and make us believe that they are, you know, whatever it is, happy, just, you know, crushed or deeply, deeply, deeply in love. Yeah, I think the actresses are really amazing in this. And I think it is one um one thing that really sets it apart from the earlier work she did is that these are two actresses that are like adult and in full control of um, their acting abilities. I think um, all the, in um, girlhood tomboy and, um, and water lilies, I think, I mean, they're, they're younger actors. So even if they are um, on their way to being professionals, they're not there yet where this is really just, I think, Skiyama lets them work and do their craft. Um, and it's just, their craft is amazing. Their chemistry is amazing. Um, they're just a joy to watch together. I know I want to watch more movies with, with, with them together. Uh, it doesn't necessarily even have to be sequels or a sequel to this story. But um, I also saw... Um, I forgot which festival I was, I got a screening link for this movie called Jumbo with um, Naomi Merlant. And that is a, that is a strange movie, but I got to say she's incredible in it because she falls in love with a carnival ride. (laughs) I know it's such a weird premise and you do have to have some suspension of, of of disbelief. And there's some, you know, interesting choices there. There's like a, really weird dreamlike sequence. It's kind of like uh, out of under, under the skin, but it's, uh, you know, again, reason to see it is, is for her. And I'm, uh, I'm curious to watch more work from, from, from these actresses because of 
how incredible they ca- they carry this film in every way, shape, and form, and just you know certainly. The, the interesting thing too is like a lot of a, a lot of Scamma's films before this didn't do the shot reverse shot, but here it does it so effectively to capture what each person is feeling in that moment. And you feel what they feel in that moment, which is again, the perfect expression of, uh, of um, empathy through, through film. And, you know, most people have been through some sort of relationship that maybe didn't work out or, you know, the, again, the, like I said early on, is that the story of, you know, a forbidden love or a story where a love wasn't fully realized. The, the funny thing is, is like she treats it like as a good, almost like a, a good thing. Like the, the ending of this movie is like, at least I had this experience. Yes. I'm, you know, married. I, I have a kid and maybe my life is a little more conventional or at least, you know, it didn't, it, you know, I, we don't really get to know, you know, her experience, you know, post, this this um like part of me always wanted maybe one more scene of them reuniting together in person but that to me is like almost like something you'd see at like e2 mama tambien or whatever but <laughs> you know where like the, the the two characters meet while they're when they're older and wiser or you know we get to see but i don't know if you, ne- you need that in this film because of what it's trying to uh, convey one of um, the things i like about this movie and i it only really occurred to me in preparation for this show is that it's it really underscores what first love is all about. You know, like, I mean, 99% of people do not end up with the first person they truly love. You know, it just, when you, when you're growing up, you love so quickly and so intently and sometimes for the wrong reasons. And, and it's probably a good thing that we don't end up with the first person we love. But the idea, one of the ideas of first love is that you are preparing someone inevitably for somebody else and that's that's really kind of the crazy thing marianne's entire job the whole reason she is brought to this island is to render um excuse me to render eloise for another man you know which is what first love really is it's like you are going to be there you're going to stumble with another person you're gonna have them flesh out their emotions make a whole bunch of mistakes and inevitably they're gonna go on to somebody else there's a lot clumsier ways that the idea of first love can be put on film so we're kind of we're really really lucky that it's been captured in something as elegant as this yeah and just 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 knowing that you had that experience is a blessing yeah. of itself you know even if and you may never together. see them again you mean you know a lot of times we don't get to talk to these people again we don't get to see these people again so while you're right those moments that are in movies like Itu mama tambien are neat you know far more often than not the end of the story is the end of the story yeah i also think it's interesting in this one um just because of the time period they're in uh they and they mention this in one of their last love scenes that um the last painting um Marianne has of Heloise will eventually be the on, like the only image she has of her even in her mind because mm-hmm. she's going to forget um and in that time 
portraits were really like the reason for existing for the most part was kind of for remembering, um, for capturing a person because that was the only way to do it back then. Um, and so, yeah, there's a way, and I think the portrait of a lady on fire, um, that is in the movie. I wondered this time watching it, um, if that is, that was like the final image she wanted of her lover. Um, but yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's, I think the only, the only question I had, and it's not necessarily criticism, it's just more of a, what do you think this adds to the story is the, the abortion mm. subplot. Uh, Cause like, I, I mean, I don't mind how, ha- certainly to me, this is more or less a love story between two people and certainly having Sophie, the maid around isn't, super superfluous or anything that I found unnecessary, but I, it was only the only question I had after watching this the first time was what did that really add to this story? Do you think it's necessary? Do you think it helps? Do you think it's, it's okay that (laughs) that it's in this film? Yeah. I, I like the character of Sophie. That's her name, right? Sophie. Yeah. Um, Because honestly, and I don't know how well this works, but Celine Sciamma, her idea, I've in an interview with her, um, the idea behind that character is um, sort of that when once the mother leaves, that leaves the three of them on equal footing, um, and she's not so much their servant anymore. I don't like. I don't really find that to be true. I think even when once the mother's left, there's definitely a dynamic of her being the servant. But I do think that that dynamic, that class dynamic um, is good to have here um, because the whole, I mean, the whole plot centers around really they're two ladies. They have, um, they have money. I mean, the reason she's being married off is so she can live, continue to live as a lady, basically. Um, and she decides she ultimately decides not to stay with um, with Marianne. And you don't really know if it's because uh, she's just not willing to live that way because it would be a very different way of life living with another woman in that period. Um, but mm-hmm. Sophie like really has the least options of any of them, I would say. I mean, she's a servant. She's not going to marry out of that position. She's like kind of there for the long run um and i think her situation with the abortion i think that was celine scamma's way of trying to put them all on equal footing like oh we're all um in this situation where we have to deal with pregnancy and like the results of that during this time um but ultimately i do feel watching this that there's a pretty stark class division even so and i don't maybe scamma wouldn't disagree with that um, and I think I see it like really poignantly in this one scene where um, after it's like her abortion is sort of happening. I think she's taken these drugs um, and then the baby is coming out. So she's lying down in bed and um, um, and Heloise is bent over her and then Marianne starts sketching them and posing them. Yeah. And I find that scene very strange. Um, I don't know if, if you all had thoughts about that. Um, 
but it it seemed very weird to me for this woman who's like definitely in a lot of pain and discomfort um, to just be posed that way and become a subject for this artist who's more upwardly mobile than her. Well, I think you, you actually answered your own question when you talked about how this was a time where the portrait was the record, right? And the portrait was, you know, somebody posing for the, the image of them that would stand in perpetuity at their most regal or at their youngest or at their most beautiful. These kinds of moments that they were going through were ephemeral. Like they were not captured. They were not put into literature or put into art. So for her to say, I am going to capture this for posterity. And we don't see what actually becomes of that sketch. Presumably Marianne keeps it, but we don't Mm -hmm. know. Um, For her to say, Mm -hmm. this is a moment worth capturing in perpetuity, I think speaks to how she sees these other two women, how she sees Sophie, you know, it's, it, it seems so bonkers now in the age where we can all capture an image with something that we have in our pocket that at a, a, and there was a time and place where it would take a lot more effort and skill to capture something. Otherwise it's just going to fade in your memory. So you kind of said it yourself, like in a time where beauty and affluence was what was captured with paint and canvas. Here's a woman who says, here's something ugly and painful and deeply, deeply sad that only a few people are in this room, but happens all around the world. I need to capture this for posterity as well, because it has value. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. I would agree with that. And certainly in this film, you know, she captures love at its most freeing and enveloping. And yet at the same time, she also captures the fact that it can't evolve and and continue forward, which, you know, makes it kind of a melancholy experience. But then again, you, you have to look at the fact that there's joy and the, the fact that they got to experience this kind of joy together is uh, you know what what you're left with in, in at the end of this story. It's it's certainly the reveal of the book in the painting is also one of those moments where uh, I can't I, I, well, I, yeah, I kind of lose totally. it because it's like it's so beautiful. It's like just the fact that that was included in in this other portrait. It it, it means something. It, it means that there was this connection between these two people. That is now forever immortal. Before in some this way. question of like whether, like it's a message, right? Like she's kind of hoping it'll be stumbled yeah. across at some point. I just think um, communication during this time is very interesting, and the way it's handled in the film is also interesting. Just that you really could go away and not ever see any trace of somebody again in this world where there's no like fewer, just fewer images and no pocket cameras. <laughs> Before that, though, can we back up for a second and talk about how the return of a man to this house seems like just such a drop into ice water? Oh, totally. (laughs) It's like, and and the guy has one line and he's there for one second, but his appearance, and I think he's, it's like a bonjour or a hello. 
his presence just yeah, that moment like, the oh. entire, everybody who watches this movie is like ah oh, shit <laughs> the inevitability yeah. of yeah what's yeah what's it takes that moment at the beginning of girlhood and just amplifies it by a factor of 20 yeah it's it is very stark <laughs> when um when she enters the kitchen and he's sitting there yeah definitely and he doesn't have to say anything. It's it's not like I have come to take Eloise and we're going to go, you know, like it, it just, it's just, there he is. And it's like, Oh man, here's a dude. He's going to wreck it all. Shit. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's just like the, the return of the mother. You're like, Oh, they can't be, they can't, this can't last yeah. forever. I also I really felt that in the scenes after um, they've parted where uh, Marianne is, forcing her way through a crowd at an art show and it's pretty much all men and she's just like forcing her way through it and it feels very crowded um and the energy is just so different than it was earlier in the movie when it's just this quiet house with three or four women in it at any given time yeah and of course that final moment oh (sighs) yeah well also also at the art show when she's talking to the, the 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 one patron and he's he's talking about the scene that she's chosen chosen the scene that she's chose to render uh from is it orpheus yeah and he goes oh yeah. this is fascinating normally when people paint this scene they paint it either after he's turned or right before he turns you've taken a different point of view and shown it in a way that we're not used to and it's like well duh that's the whole movie right here's a right. whole bunch of things that you're not normally used to seeing from this point of view and that's why we're doing it yeah absolutely i i struggled with that the way that myth was integrated into this movie the first few times i saw it and i feel like it only really clicked this last time um that i mean i'm still not sure if it's what i would have chosen but when they're in when they first read this myth and they're all discussing it over uh just like over candlelight and sophie's there too and um a participant in the conversation and they're having this just like intellectual discussion of this myth. Um, and I forget which one of them says, I think it's uh, Marianne that when he turns around um, to let Eurydice die, um, he's making the poet's choice rather than the lovers, um, which is, I guess, to imagine her um, in this very specific way rather than, continue on together and I'm and I know in the end that's sort of what they both choose sorry about my dog again (laughs) um just that they they choose to have this beautiful memory rather than to explore where it could go um I don't know if do you have do you all have thoughts on the parallels between the relationship and that myth and how it's used in this I don't know the myth well enough to, and, and and my wife is just whispering across the room. It's Hades town, which I really should know. Cause she's played that album <laughs> to death. Um, right. Right. I, 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 all I can say is that I did like the idea of telling the story from a different perspective. I, you, you're right to say that maybe that explanation goes on like one line too long. 
Like I, I believe the the, mm-hmm. the the screenwriter could have left it at ordinarily it's told before he turns or after he turns. Uh, you know, I don't think you need to go as far as to say, but you've done this. You know, good work. Um, but I, I don't unfortunately have a, a a concrete opinion on the two as a relationship. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat there is that uh, I yeah, sometimes those things kind of bother me, but in this instance, it didn't. I, but then again, I'm not as familiar with the myth as I would no, like to I mean, be. me neither. Uh, <laughs> I pretty much know what they read in that scene. Um, and I, I was vaguely familiar with it. Like moments in movies, especially with professors, you know, that are just like, let me tell you the story of this that could basically be spelling hmm. out the themes. <laughs> those things always bother me. Like even in a movie like enemy, which I actually really love the, you know, he, Jake Gyllenhaal is this professor is like, okay, let me tell you on this chalkboard here, what this movie could potentially be about. Right. <laughs> so whenever like things are like included like that into a, a movie, um, I'm usually skeptical or rolling my eyes, but not in this case. Yeah. I think, I do think it works. Um, but yeah. yeah, I was just curious about what everyone's thoughts were. And then she also, um, Heloise or Marianne has several visions of her toward the end um, right. in white, which I think is meant to sort of replicate that myth. Um, she's just taking, mm-hmm. <laughs> looking at her. Um, it's so, it's so weird. <laughs> and that, that myth is weird um, because it's, Basically, um, if what are their names? But if um, this guy <laughs> would just not turn around, he could have his his lover with him, and she would live. But he can't not turn around. He has to look at her, and so she dies. Um, and in this case, like the choice is basically um, to like to choose choose to look around and have the relationship die. I can't decide if that's empowering or yeah. not, <laughs> but it's, it's definitely interesting. Yeah, no, it's an interesting element to have her sort of haunted by these, these visions of, again, like the, the inevitable fact that she's going to be married off. Um, but yeah, that's something that again, in other films, I find questionable. Uh, but in the, in the same context of like a film like Phantom Thread, where he's potentially hallucinating his, you know, the ghost of his mother, I find I like in that moment, I find it really um, emotionally resonant because yes, it could be a hallucination, but yes, she could also really be there. Uh, and also, it's sort of like randomly thrown in here. You know, it's like, it's not something cause this isn't a ghost story, but in a way you are haunted by inevitability or you're haunted by the past or you're haunted by a thought or a dream or something. Yeah. And in this case, it's kind of a reflection of, yeah, like you're saying with the, with the myth, but uh, I find, I just find the images of her coming into view and then disappearing. Very beautiful. It's like about everything. Everything in this movie is a work of art. <laughs> the 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 acting, the actual portraits, the film itself. I'm just like this. This is art. Yeah. This is this is pure cinema. This is 
as good as you know movies can get. Um, so we can sort of uh, get ready to wrap things up. Well, we have nothing else. Anything else? I, I kind of I kind of steered you away, so I, I do feel bad. But we didn't actually get to that ending of of Heloise finally seeing a live orchestra and just absolutely losing it. Um, totally. That was the moment, by the way, that I figured out that it had been over a year since I'd seen live music. So I was a bit more of a mess watching that than I normally am. Um, But I mean, uh, it's breathtaking. It's, it's absolutely incredible in capture and performance watching Eloise just get so deeply, deeply moved um, from, from a distance and just, staying with it the whole time it's kind of the classical version of that rihanna song totally yeah i think (laughs) skiama well she said she picked that song because she wanted a classical song that people are familiar with but um i also think she's somebody outside of film i think she cares like a great deal about music and art um and i think it's definitely um really close to her relationships. And so I think what's beautiful about this is like, once again, um, it's an experience I think any music lover has had where you're just like completely overcome, but also it's like folded into the relationship they have because um, Marianne introduced this. Yeah. She introduced the song on the, on the harpsichord. Um, And I think that scene when she plays that on the harpsichord for her, I think is a really important moment for them because it's the moment where um, I think Heloise becomes interested in Marianne and realizes that she might, or that she's an interesting person (laughs) um, and that she's drawn to her as a result, as a result of the things she knows and the experiences that she's had and her response to art. And it's all over um, her face, right? Like you watch her as 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 Marianne is playing, and you see the smile that's creeping, the smile that we haven't seen yet start yeah. to creep onto her face. Yeah, um, and also I think that's yeah. one of the moments. I don't know if it's the first moment, but it's one of the moments where um, Heloise starts observing Marianne rather than the other way around. Yeah, which is beautiful. <laughs> um, so you get in this final scene, you get all of that. You get. Um, Heloise's self-discovery of like of finally experiencing this music as it was meant to be experienced and also how that echoes in her relationship um, with Marianne and yeah the way it's captured is just brilliant and I think that they do include the whole movement of that piece just like with Rihanna Um, so it's just this extended moment in time where all you have are um, Adele's reactions and they're just amazing. Uh, I just, there's something that's really hard to talk about with um, expression and film that you really just have to experience. And I think that's, that is what happens in that scene. It's just very cinematic in a way that's almost hard to talk about. You just kind of have to be there for it. Yeah, I know that's why it's hard sometimes to host a yeah. podcast. Like, how do you put moments like that into words? But I really just, you know, the, the, the main goal is to get people to watch and experience this for themselves and hope that they have 
that same sort of feeling or that same recognition or empathy. And, you know, that's certainly one of those moments where it all sort of culminates and it all sort of just, it's like the, one of those great final moments that people will probably be talking about for, for years and years to come. I mean, as much as I loved parasite and it's, you know, still my number one of last year, this is, this has crept up more and more upon rewatches as being a, you know, a, 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 a true masterpiece. Like, like you've been saying, it's, it's, it took a couple of viewings surprisingly, but I, now it's like, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I feel overwhelmed with emotion, yeah. you know, sometimes even just thinking about it and it's recently come out uh, on, on criterion Blu-ray and, Certainly, if you want to take advantage of that 50% off Barnes & Noble month, uh, I, I don't know what kind of extras are on it, but the film itself makes it worth buying yeah. and owning for, for, for life. Layers. <laughs> Once again, layers. It, and you really pick up on them the more times you watch it. It's very, oh, yeah. it really gives a lot. And uh, usually how things are wrapped up is with a top three. And it's kind of just <laughs> might as well make it a top four. But I mean, really for me, it's just kind of funny because I'd, I'd say that it's, it's really in chronological order, uh, you know, with, with the, like, and I like, like I said, I like her three other films a lot actually. Uh, but you know, for me, portrait of a lady on fire is the clear masterpiece, the number one, and then girlhood would be number two. And then, number three would be tomboy. Uh, so it's just like every film got a little bit better for me. Personally. Yeah. And the speed with which she's gotten better is just um, incredible. <laughs> I, because even, I mean, her first film, water lilies, you can tell it's a debut. It has like those moments of awkwardness, those, and those like kind mm -hmm. of maybe cringy things that she had to get out. Um, but yeah, I just think every one of her films, she builds on the last one in terms of technique, in terms of like her thought processes. Yeah. Um, and they all just keep getting deeper, I think. Yeah, they, she evolved. And I know she's, uh, I don't know if the pandemic has affected filming or not, but supposedly she's filming in October or yeah, last month, starting last month on a new film. That's good. Potentially starring twins. Oh, that's maybe? interesting. Young, young adults. Are we again? aware that I'm, I'm a twin? <laughs> so that interests me. Yeah. Um, of course. Yeah. That's cool. She's oh. a, the one thing I, I'm always kind of curious whenever it comes to an international filmmaker is I always wonder if they have any interest in entering the, kind of the, the American system and creating yeah. something there. I don't know if she ever would um, just in terms of the story she likes to tell and the amount of control she seems to enjoy having to great success, I should say on her work. But I would be interested to see if she's ever brought over into the Hollywood machine, what she might try again. Oh no, I don't want to see no, her do, no, I do don't a Marvel movie. Well, okay, that's a whole other show. But I mean, you know, I would I would be interested to see, you know, her take on like a best-selling book and see what she does with it. You know? Mhm. Mm yeah. I would yeah. love to it would be awesome if it was like a 1970s kind of American environment where 
um, with like uh, the director focus in a way that the the director vision focus in a way that we don't really have in contemporary um, Hollywood cinema. Right. Um, And that's why I think she's, I feel like um, if conditions were favorable for her to do a movie the way she wanted, she would. Um, But I get the feeling that she's too smart to try, (laughs) you know? It's, yeah. I mean, it's going to be entirely up to her. The, the, the only reason why I kind of bring it up is if you look at the last decade um, and you were to take Damien Chazelle, the director of La La Land, if you take him out of the equation, the 10 directors who got Oscars are all Oscars who came up in other country systems. So we're at this and, and not for not for international films. Like, I mean, one or two of them were stuff like Roma or, you know, to the extent that the artist was and certainly Parasite. But when you get people like Guillermo del Toro working within the American system or Inuritu working within the American system, it can produce some incredible results. Um, but it's it all comes down to, of course, we're still saying they're all men, um, but it can potentially create some really good pop culture which I would love to see her imprint on some pop culture. Yeah. Yeah. I'm open to it. <laughs> that's, a, that's what I'll we're say. All to. Yeah. <laughs> we're all We're all, we're all really skeptical of it, but we're like, okay. Yeah. Well, who's the director of the latest, uh, not Captain America. What the, the Eternals? What thinking of? Well, I Was mean, the Chloe Jaw is about to do right? a Marvel, is about to do a yeah, Marvel movie. Um, and oh, Barry had, Jenkins is about to I do. An, oh, he's about to do Lion King too. Yeah, the, it's we could be oh, here for wow. a while. I mean, uh, you know, Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck did Captain Marvel as well. Um, we could be here for a long time talking about you know uh, auteurs or indie filmmakers entering into the franchises. But even you know, just as far as you know, getting some more money, getting some more marketing into these movies. And getting them kind of a few more eyeballs. I just, I wonder what reach they could have. Like, I mean, I would love, I want every single 14 year old girl to see water lilies, but you have a real, you have to kind of twist their arm. Cause it's like, you're going to have to read this. You know, if there's a contemporary yeah. English version of water lilies out there to be made, I want Celine Sciamma to make it. Yeah, that's that's fair. Um, working in a more like independent mode, mm-hmm. I think. I do like Hollywood movies today. <laughs> I mean, I know with the pandemic, things are even like very weak for like what's coming out. Um, but I just don't like a lot of Hollywood products lately, and especially since Marvel and Disney are like practically the only games in town. I know that's simplify oversimplifying yeah, things, but but even even something like Tenant really disappointed me, and I'm I'm a Christopher Nolan fan, and I was just kind of like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't worse. That wasn't worse. I mean, even even if the, the the theater in Chicago here, the Music Box is possibly the safest place you can venture out right now because of what they've done. I, I still felt like. I probably could have waited to see that. It wasn't anything. Still haven't seen it. Uh, part yeah, just, me neither. Part, part of me wants yeah. to watch it on my phone just to piss Christopher Nolan off. 
Might as well. It's coming yeah, out in December. I'll, I'll be watching it at home, but I mean, you know, he wants me to go. I needed the subtitles. That was really, that's, that's what really annoyed me too, is like all the, all the complaints about previous films that people have had in regards to like, man, you know, the, the mix of the sound and how you couldn't understand the dialogue that it felt like to times 10 oh, really? for tenant. Yeah. See, that's, <laughs> yeah. I feel like he doesn't care about his audience very much. I mean, if you're going to release a film like that during a pandemic, basically require people to go to theaters to see it. Um, and then just like that whole situation with the sound mixing, it's like, do you want no. people to enjoy your film? <laughs> do you want people to survive your film? <laughs> it's just very, <laughs> it seems very clear what a poor decision that was to release it in theaters yeah. and only in theaters. Right. Yeah. Yeah. His and his yeah. films are really loud, quiet, loud anyway. Like I find a lot of times when I'm watching, you know, if I'm just throwing on something while I'm cooking, I throw on like Inception or, or Interstellar or one of those. I find that I'm constantly having to jockey the volume because his action is so bombastic while his dialogue is all very, very muted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe something's wrong with Maybe. his ears. So he should listen yeah. to the people who are telling him to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> well that's that sound that tone means it's the end of the show <laughs> uh no but seriously thank you both so much for being on uh this was a lot of fun and and a, and a director that i hope people will seek out um certainly i i believe the majority of, uh, of her film should be accessible um honestly i found i found i think i found all of her films except portrait um on canopy yeah, the, I could I could list through. where I watched all of them. Um, Canopy has uh, Girlhood and Tomboy. Um, Hulu has Portrait of a Lady on Fire, I think, is where I watched that one. Yes. Um, Criterion Channel has a few of them. That's where I saw Water Lilies. So yeah, they're streaming on a bunch. Oh, cool. Like they're really accessible. Yeah. Anybody listening in Canada, Portrait of a Lady on Fire right now is on Crave on demand. Cool. Crave. All right. So where can we find you these days uh, creating content out there, Ryan? I'm sure people should and they, they should know about your podcast and they should. Uh, well, I hope so, because my writing has taken a little bit of a hit during the pandemic. It's been. Yeah, it hasn't, hasn't no been a great time for me to crank out words, but the audio content has still been coming on schedule which has been one of my victories for the year i have not missed an episode and i'm i'm probably like jinxing myself at this point um but the matinee.ca is my little soapbox we create episodes every two weeks um and at least until the end of the year we'll be creating them on new releases we just did an episode on sofia coppola's on the rocks and our next episode will be on spike lee's american utopia um you can find them as i said matinee.ca and it is available in every single podcasting platform you can name apple spotify google it's 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 all there thank you and it's a delightful show and thank you for having me on for the uh the Pixar movie early this year. Even it seems it was like just okay. 10 years ago now. Like I, it's, it's funny because when, when, when we, when I sat down to talk, I was going to say to you, I feel so bad that I haven't had you on in so long. I've had you on this year. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an exceptionally long year. No kidding. <laughs> it feels like for sure. 
But uh, we'll see what the I, I think that they announced that the new Pixar yep, movie is going to be Day. on Disney Plus. I think they did. Yep. So I'm excited for that because yeah. I hear and thank you for having things. Thank you, uh, Kate. I, I know you are slowly but surely getting back into writing, but um, you know, if people want to follow you on Letterboxd or Twitter. Where can they find oh, you? Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been pretty quiet online in general lately. Um, I guess they can. Fi- yeah, Letterboxd um, would be a good place. Um, I think I'm selective Kate on there. Selective underscore Kate. Um, and yeah, I've been I've kind of hit pause on a lot of writing, <laughs> especially because there's just not that great that many outlets um available anymore i was writing for fander for a while um and they shut down their editorial section which was sad because they really um that was a great place to write about um really all kinds of movies from like camp um to classic film to current releases um it was just it was a good a good little site and now it's gone um and a lot of other, a lot of other digital publications are collapsing all over the place. So it's not great out there. <laughs> but um, I was thinking about maybe reviving my blog again, and I'll I'll let you all know if that happens. <laughs> just because I, I don't know, maybe I should just be writing for myself these days. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? I certainly I discovered you through that blog, and of course, the fact that I you know yeah, <laughs> but. When I read your, uh, when I read your f- film writing there, that's when I went, "Oh, I, I gotta, <laughs> we gotta talk." <laughs> so I'm glad, and like I said, you know, there's a, a strong possibility of, you know, if you're up for it, to appear on some episodes next year. I'm, I'm hoping that you can and will, and you know, obviously, it's there's no way to plan ahead. Like even though I'm trying to do a, a schedule for next year, there's just no way to know what the What's what's, what's yeah. going to happen tomorrow? Yeah, that, that's that's what I said on my so, show. I was like, we're going from old films back to new films for the autumn. But once the ball drops on 2021, I have no idea what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I'm sure you'll I'll, return. I'll think of something. For sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so for December... I decided to go with uh, another favorite of mine that has a small filmography, but whew, those first two films are what I consider if I, if I were teaching a screenwriting class, uh, I would, I would be telling everybody to check out the work of one James oh, nice. L. Brooks. Oh, that's going to be fun. Cause, uh, cause uh, I adore terms of endearment and broadcast news so much. Uh, they're some of the best dialogue you'll ever hear in your life uh, outside of Billy Wilder, maybe that you'll find in those movies. So I'm hoping to have uh, a guest or two on from my new, one of my new favorite podcasts, screen drafts, which takes film viewing and obsession to almost like a game like level, like they draft a list and together with like two or three people, they decide like, what are the, you know, top seven Kubrick movies or the top seven, you know, that they do directors, but they also do themes. They do genres. They do actors. They basically just come together and do this interesting draft that almost as you're listening to it, you're in suspense as to what's going to, what they're going to pick or what they're not going to pick. 
you know, it, for the John Carpenter draft, the thing did not make the list. <laughs> and I still can't believe that. Um, yeah, that, that, that was an interesting episode, but they have different guests on and it's a really fun, interesting way to look at film. I mean, obviously a lot of people don't like the idea of ranking art and I understand that, but I'm, I'm still kind of a nerd. I come from the era of, you know, Ebert making top 10 lists and stuff like that. So I, I, I find that, that show to be endlessly interesting. And I know the fact that the, the main host, uh, his favorite film is broadcast news and, uh, I believe he will definitely be on. So follow us at directorsclubpodcast.com or follow me uh, at letterbox at now playing Jim. Uh, thank you again to my two excellent guests for returning. Yeah, really appreciate great. it. Thank great you. to talk. I, and we'll see you in December. <laughs> Bye. Hey, bye. <laughs>